Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello there, gentle listeners. Welcome to The Sewer Show on 3CR. End the rot. Hmm, what to do about that? Why not squat the lot? I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. Andy, we've got a big show today. Big show. And the contents of it may surprise. Guess what? It's fascism. (laughs) Oh, hang on. And anti-fascism. What? So, we are going to have a chat with Blake Peterson, a Melbourne anti-fascist. And we're also going to have a chat about everything that has happened in the last month and the last week. It's been madness. So, let's go to a song, and then we'll go straight to Blake. Joined in the studio now by Blake Peterson, an anti-fascist from Melbourne. How are you, Blake? Yeah, good, mate. How are you going? Fantastic. So you've been involved in uh, Melbourne anti-fascism for about how long now? Um, actually, only probably since the start of the year. Before that, um, yeah, lived elsewhere in Australia. So, yeah, came out against Reclaim. And what prompted you to uh, become involved? Um, yeah, I suppose that as soon as I saw that there was actually a right-wing movement taking to the streets to denounce Muslims and you know Muslims are some of my closest friends that I thought I'd come out and tell them to get buggered and I suppose that's also an integral part of my anarchist politics. What's the connection between your anarchist politics and your anti-fascist activism? Uh, Well I suppose because anarchism stands uh, ultimately for the most human freedom possible that uh, while I'm not might not be religious. I think that it's everyone's right to be so if they want. Um, And that fascism is ultimately the antithesis of my politics, really. I think I uh, would agree with you there, (laughs) Blake. Um, So you became aware of uh, Reclaim and the rally that was on April the 4th. There's been a a series of rallies since then, including in Bendigo. Um, mm-hmm. What's been the nature of your participation in that kind of um, protest activity? Uh, I suppose that every single time I've been involved in organisation on a number of fronts, and I've also been, I suppose you could essentially say, frontline each and every time. <laughs> okay. And in that frontline position, have you seen uh, an escalation of violence from the right wing side uh, as the protests have gone on? I think I would say I've seen an intent for escalation of violence, but maybe actually the first one I was at, the original reclaim at the start of the year, was the most violent in terms of, you know, essentially blood spilled and people getting their heads kicked in. But since then, we've had more and more run-ins with the fascists where, you know, they've been carrying knives or other forms of weapons, um, or there was also, you know, the bloke on the bus with the gun. 
Um, but the police have been playing more and more of a role in keeping us apart as well. And in terms of, is this, you've noticed that there's been an increase in um, intent or let's say rhetoric. How has that, do you think, influenced the nature of these rallies? Because I guess there's been a split, obviously, between Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front. That was seemingly partly to do with uh, the UPF, the United Patriots Front, having decided at some point that it needed to constitute itself as being, as you referred to earlier, the kind of front line. Um, in Bendigo, there was, um, I think, what was their largest rally to date on October the 10th. There was mm-hmm. hundreds of people participating in that. What's your understanding of the nature of that milieu in terms of there's the UPF, there's reclaimers, there's a range of other groups and individuals... What's your take on how that's progressed since, say, April? Um, I suppose I would have to go back to sort of more of an analysis of what UPF essentially are, and that's that, as I think most people would know, a fascist core are the leaders, and that they are essentially grouping more and more people with hardline views around them, and that essentially they're also... uh, I wouldn't say they're building a street thug organisation yet, but um, that's probably their intent. I mean, if you saw Sherman on the 7.30 report the other day, he was bragging about how they have ex-cage fighters and all sorts of stuff. Um, the escalation of it, I mean, like how it's developed, I suppose, is that while the first reclaim did have, like, uh, until the re- recent Bendigo rally, uh, the first reclaim was definitely the biggest one. And it had lots of your sort of mums and dads and, you know, all this kind of rhetoric that they espouse about being quite normal, angry, working-class people. Uh, Since then, they've become more and more hardline, more and more dodgy elements, I suppose. Do you think that that fact changes the way in which anti-fascists should approach these rallies? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more and more... We have to take it quite seriously. Um, you know, the crews that I participate in, essentially, you know, we endeavour to cover our faces and identities and these kinds of things because while the fascists haven't actually come out and started physically attacking people personally or, see, you know, hunting them out or, you know, inflicting really grievous bodily harm, the threat is definitely escalating. Their rhetoric is escalating And in the face-to-face confrontations, you can tell that that's, you know, they're really out for a fight now. Mm. Um, Especially, you know, because you could say that they lost their first few rounds in Melbourne. Um, And it's going to be interesting what the future holds because they effectively won the last few rounds in Bendigo. Mm. So in terms of the the anti-fascist presence, you could be said to represent a, a more militant approach to fighting fascists and there has been some discussion about the participation of people wearing masks or other disguises Mm -hmm. and at first it seems to me that um, those who are opposed to these groups are becoming uh, are coming to be more familiar with that presence at rallies what's Mm -hmm. what's been your experience in terms of interacting with others who've attended to oppose uh, reclaim australia pf but aren't aren't masking up aren't adopting those kinds of tactics what's what's been the response since uh, April. Since April? Yeah. Um, it's certainly developed. I think 
the first couple of rounds that we were definitely denounced. I mean, at every turn, I think there's a lot of more liberal people of more liberal sympathies that seek to denounce us, say that our militancy only escalates theirs and so on. But like my experience of the last Bendigo one, I think was kind of summed up by one particular experience. We had a German woman come up to us and ask um, if we were wearing masks because we thought it was going to be violent. And we said, well, you know, we kind of tried to reassure her and say, you know, this is a really well-organized demo, probably won't be violent, you know, we're going to do the best to ensure everyone's security. And she was saying, well, you know, where I've just come from, uh, demonstrations are much more hardline and it's really um, important that we have people who take the security really um, quite seriously. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, you know, there was one point where we were marching around with masks on and we had someone from our side supposedly yelling at us about wearing masks. And um, But I don't know. I think ultimately, you know, the UPF don't know who any of us are. I think they're frustrated by that fact. I think they're frustrated by the fact that they don't understand that we don't want to be a bunch of superheroes and, Mm -hmm. yeah, that might maybe drive them a little bit insane. (laughs) So you would say, I guess, that that the primary function of that kind of organising is to... Would you describe it as a a collective form of self-defence? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't really know what else to say about that. I I think it totally sums it up. We are much more anonymous we can disappear into the crowd we can um do what we need to do without having undue scrutiny i suppose yeah and what about in terms of the policing of the protest has there been particular attention paid to those who are engaged while wearing some form of you know a mask or disguise or of some sort Gracho Marx glasses Gracho Marx glasses clown <laughs> wigs you know whatever yeah yeah whatever uh, I think there was someone dressed up as a unicorn carrying around bags of glitter at one of them uh, yeah the police it's interesting I think they've been going in swings and roundabouts a little bit um, obviously each time they pay much more attention to us that are wearing masks or whatever you want to do to conceal your identity. They definitely don't like it. I mean, uh, I think at maybe two rallies I've had cops try and snatch the bandana from my face and shove me around and, you know, essentially talking shit to me because I'm covering up. But like at the last Bendigo, we didn't really get harassed at all. I think it all comes down to what their instructions are and how confident they feel about the ability to contain the rally. Do you think there's been any kind of um, shift or modulation in police tactics over the, the, the period? Mm. Or is it has it remained fairly, um, you know, they have a strategy and they employ it to the best of their abilities? I think every time they definitely have a strategy. You could talk about a shift in the sense that um, they've upgraded how physical they want to be when... Uh, they're attempting to try and keep the sides apart. Uh, obviously, we saw that on July 18 with the capsicum spray, and they've had it every time since. Um, and we've certainly noticed increased numbers of them deployed, and you know, each unit that has all the capsicum spray has essentially a commander attached to it. Yeah, and I think essentially they're seeking more and more to keep us apart to the extent that you know, uh, they use barricades and they mm. have decontamination units set up and they have you know massive trucks ready to arrest you know for mass arrest but i mean that hasn't actually happened yet but they're certainly prepared yeah. whereas april the 4th the first one i think they were almost completely unprepared they just had a large presence and didn't know what would happen yeah 
In terms of the uh, ability to mobilise people to um, mm-hmm. come out and to oppose these groups, what do you think is the most effective means of communicating to the public the necessity of opposing Reclaim and the UPF and assorted other organisations? Uh, do you mean as in con- like the content of our message or the forms of communication? Both, Both. yeah. Um, I think well, in terms of forms of communication, I mean, we obviously put a fair bit of work into our standard, you know, poster runs and leafleting and these kinds of things. But I think social media has actually been more and more a part of it. That's how more and more people find out about it and that's how they actually engage in the debates. Um, in terms of the message... I actually think the message has been quite consistent. Um, I don't know that it's changed a whole lot. It's just essentially pointing out that the core of these organisations is fascist, um, that Reclaim in itself presents a kind of dangerous right-wing populism, um, and that we should oppose it in any way possible. Have you, over the last year, have you seen a shift in the uh, union movement's sort of uh, approach to these sort of things? I know that on occasions they perhaps could have been a little bit more involved than they have been for pragmatic reasons sometimes and who knows why for others. Have you seen that change over the year? Uh, um, I mean, one of the organisations that I'm fairly involved with takes a... Uh, a fair bit of time to try and engage the union movement and over the course of the year I'd say that I've seen practically bugger all change. I think that essentially uh, uh, the people that care about this, the people that are going to mobilise against the fascists are from the rank and file that were effectively chasing the ghost trying to get the official union movement involved. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I don't think that anyone is opposed to the idea of getting the unions on board. That would be really bloody useful. But, yeah, I haven't seen much change apart from, you know, individual unionists coming out. What about in terms of the, I guess, more general left? Do you think the left in general is paying attention, enough attention to these uh, groups? Um, Because there's also a, a line, I guess, that... Uh, it's actually mistaken to confront these groups that they are, you know, they thrive on publicity and any kind of challenge just generates more media coverage which spreads their message and, and popularises them. What what do you make of that kind of approach? Mm, I think uh, historically you could say that that's pretty useless. Um, I mean, what the left's approach in general has been sort of depends how far you want to extend the concept of the left. <laughs> uh, you know, the more hardline elements, certainly anarchist and um, the more revolutionary socialist groups have always considered this a big threat and have always taken to the streets. The method of our tactics has always been a matter of debate, but I wouldn't say that no one doesn't take it serious, whereas... You know, there are elements of the so-called socialist left and some of our more social democratic friends that uh, sort of want to tokenistically engage and say that, you know, racism is bad and at certain points they've been willing to try and help mobilise for this, but they don't actually seem to want a serious confrontation. Trying to win that argument that it takes serious confrontation has been quite difficult. Um, I guess one of the most interesting examples recently has been the Bendigo Uh, organising. So Bendigo Action Coalition are essentially the people in Bendigo that wanted to come out on the streets and they 
requested the assistance, I suppose, of um, of CAF and sort of the more autonomous elements in Melbourne to come out and help oppose the fascists while the broader movement in Bendigo of, you know, it was called Believe in Bendigo, which was much more liberal and pro-business and whatever, effectively tried to undermine that. And we certainly saw the effects of that on the day there were, despite the extensive work that Bendigo Action Coalition put in, um, we didn't have a whole lot of people from Bendigo come out. I mean, there were there were a good number of them, but not as many as I think there would have been if we hadn't been undermined. And then the result of that was that Bendigo feel... I'm sorry, the United Patriots feel more buoyed than ever. They had a really successful rally, whereas, you know, um, after all the Melbourne ones, they've been on the back foot, and now they feel that they are on the front foot somewhat again. Mm. Although it certainly doesn't hurt to be buoyed along by a serious sense of self-delusion when you're the United Patriots. (laughs) That's Uh, for sure. I guess the other thing that believe in Bendigo did though was they also had I think like a 2000 strong multicultural day like the week before which do you think that things like that play a part um or have a part to play yeah my personal opinion is that they actually do I just think like I think they're really useful and I think it's great that any part of society will stand up to racism or discrimination um I just see the limits to it and you know, especially when you're confronting fascists, effectively, who don't give a damn about the kind of respectability that these people might, um, and that uh, that when they work to actively discredit the more hardline elements, then that's not really um, helpful. <laughs> Do you think one of the reasons people are sometimes reluctant to, to actively confront these groups is because... Essentially, they're afraid. I mean, these groups, especially the EPF, project an image, as you mentioned earlier, we're bodybuilders, we're martial artists, we're big, tough men. Um, Is that a factor? And how do you think that that can be uh, countered most effectively? Uh, um, Yeah, I do definitely think that that's a factor. I know people that kind of feel somewhat too intimidated to come to the rallies. Uh, Obviously, they're fairly intense in terms of the Australian political landscape. Um, But the most realistic argument against it would be that we're safer in numbers. I mean, I really believe that most Australians, most working class Australians think that uh, fascism and racism is a load of crap and they wouldn't support people like the UPF. Um, They don't come out for a number of reasons. Some of them are, yeah, the intimidation. Um, Yeah, as I said, we're stronger in numbers. You know, the more of us there are, then the less likely they're going to feel that it's okay for them to come out on the streets, the less likely that there is to be in uh, any kind of altercation because we can just stand around and laugh at them. <laughs> mm. um, are you So you're um, presumably making preparations for November the 22nd. Reclaim Australia yep. has announced they'll be holding nationwide rallies again, including in Melbourne. The UPF has Good again apparently... Them announced that they'll be there to to be the kind of fascist vanguard for Reclaim. Um, How do you view November 22nd? Like, do you think that that Reclaim will be able to attract a large number of people, a smaller? You know, what's your kind of read on their current situation? Um, uh, There's a few things playing into that. Um, I mean, I think in Melbourne they might not feel so... Like, their general supporters might not feel so great because, obviously, every time they've come to Melbourne there's been a really significant counter-protest. 
one thing that's going to play into it, especially with the UPF's involvement, is that you know their recent successes in, in Bendigo, how many people they've sort of recruited or can drag along out of that. Uh, the last reclaim on July 18, they tried to bring a bus from Bendigo and they couldn't even hire it because not enough people wanted to come. Um, I mean, but then, you know, the latest UPF rally, they had a lot of people, so that could be a big turnaround. It's it's really hard to judge. Um, I mean, for a period there, to be honest, considering my organisation and confronting the UPF, I'd almost actually forgotten that Reclaim Australia existed. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how many people they bring out in the other cities. I do know that so far most of the cities, at least... Queensland, Sydney, uh, sorry, Brisbane, Sydney, and maybe Perth have already called counter rallies as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, um, any final thoughts, Blake? Is there anything you want to communicate to our listening audience regarding these matters? Uh, I suppose I would encourage you to come out against the fascists every time that they stick their ugly heads up. Uh, November the twenty second, definitely, um, and yeah. Is there somewhere uh, you'd recommend people go to obtain more information about, uh, you know, how to come out and, and confront these fascists? Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, the tactics that I would seek to employ, I think, are best probably represented by the Melbourne Anti-Fascist Facebook page, uh, Melbourne, Melbourne Anti-Fascist Info, or we've got a blogspot, Melbourne Anti-Fascist, blogspot.com, is it? Uh, WordPress, sorry. And then I suppose the Slack Busted and Campaign Against Racism and Fascism for more information about what the fascists are up to or, uh, you know, the counter-rallies. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Blake. And, um, no worries, thank you. We'll see you on the streets. Or we might not see you on the streets, but you'll be there. <laughs> Hopefully you won't. On November 22nd. <laughs> I will be there. Yep, thank you. Fantastic, thank Take you. Take care. Thanks, Blake. <laughs> stage bottles there with sometimes antisocial, always anti-fascist. Excellent. And before that, we were speaking with Blake Peterson about the UPF and Reclaim Australia and Bendigo and all that sort of thing. Andy, it's been a big month for fascism and anti-fascism in Australia. It has, Cam. What, what's been going on? Well, I think uh, most recently we've seen... Uh, Reclaim Australia, featured on tabloid Current Affairs show Sunday. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, over the preceding few days, there's been all kinds of ructions within the United Patriots front. Leaders coming and going. Leaders uh, dissing other leaders. Mm. It's been a real circus. So before the program on Sunday night, uh, there was... So, the first thing that happened was that a video was released in, like, March or something? There was a video released in February by someone calling themselves the Great Aussie Potato. Yeah. Um, I believe that page has been taken down, but I'm not sure. It was on Facebook. And the video was of a man, um, uh, let's say, dissing Mm. Sherman Burgess and also Ralph Sermonara. Yeah, adopting some of their mannerisms in a parodic manner. Indeed. Now, I've seen mixed reports on how well this was executed. I will say 
I'll give them props for their use of props, though. Absolutely. Because the video did feature him constantly putting on different Australian flag hats. Indeed, and, and a Mr. Potato Head, too. And that made me lol. Uh, the rest of it, a little bit undergraduate, but whatever. Each to their own. Indeed. Uh, but recently, apparently this video somehow re-emerged within right-wing circles. Well, yeah. I mean, on Thursday, I think it was, of uh, pre- the previous week, Sherman Burgess uploaded a video in which he announced his retirement from uh, the UPF. He announced that he was going to close his Great Aussie Patriot page, which he did, and he claimed that this was not because, um, you know, Muslims weren't being nice to him or something of that sort. He blamed this video, and he claimed that this video had been circulating and other Patriots were guffawing at its contents, and this broke his heart, and so therefore he was going to leave, and he did. I mean, it's a bit odd that this video was produced, um, what, in February or something, and only now has it come seemingly to Sherman's attention. And certainly it's not the only video that's been produced by patriots who are critics of Sherman. I mean, he's not universally loved by all those who proclaim themselves patriots, and some even dispute his claim to be the greatest, greatest Aussie patriot. But nonetheless, that's what he did. Uh, following that, I think... I think it was that day or the next day, some concerned patriots decided they would establish a fund to um, ease Sherman into retirement. That raised, I think, around $3,500. So $3,500 was crowdfunded in order to essentially, I think, help Sherman uh, keep his ute. Mm, With his car payments. Yeah, he has a brand new ute. A diesel ute he's very proud of, hmm. and um, he was having difficulties making repayments. So, obviously, this money was um, going to help him do that. But of course, Sherman was back. Hmm. So, at the same time as this, uh, Neil Erickson, mm. a lo- a Melbourne-based neo-Nazi, mm-hmm. uh, previously convicted of making harassing phone calls to a rabbi. Indeed, he was convicted in February 2014. I think it was. Uh, and another of the UPF leadership team. Yes. He also announced that he would be leaving the UPF. He did. He he, he posted a video in which he said, well, he, he said he was considering his options. He may well be retiring, but in any case, he was determined to get drunk and play with pig's heads yep. on the weekend, which is the only sensible response to this sort of thing, I suppose. And then the other sort of main figure in the United Patriots front... Blair Cottrell, another mm. Melbourne-based neo-Nazi. Yeah. He decided... Well, firstly, he was nominated as the new leader of the UPS. Yes. Uh, Sherman nominated him and Neil as being the new leadership team. Mm. Neil apparently rejected that nomination, leaving Blair. Uh, Blair put up a few videos which were very critical of the other two, which didn't last. No, he... he- Described Sherman as emotionally weak, Mm. uh, I think effeminate in Blair's terms, Um, and also that um, he was disgusted that Sherman had been humiliated and had humiliated himself through these antics. And he declared that he was leaving the UPF and he was going to establish a new uh, political project which he invited all the UPF followers to join him in. Mm. But that didn't last either, Cam. No, well, this came. This also came on the same day that there was a uh, 
report in the Fairfax Press, uh, which went over some of Blair's previous internet postings, mm. including uh, most, I think the, the key thing that the articles took out of it was that he had at one point suggested that uh, there should be a f- photo of Adolf Hitler hanging in every Australian classroom. Yes, and? And that children should be taught a Mein Kampf. They should be issued Mein Kampf annually, every Australian school child. Wait, annually? Uh, yeah, I know. A new edition? He must own the publishing rights or does something. He, does he realise that they're not put, make, putting new stuff in? Well, maybe he could add a forward, you know, each year. Yeah, well, I mean, as they, you know, if the United Patriots Front had become, you know, the sole power in Australia... Yes. Every year there'd be something new to report. Indeed. But in the meantime, perhaps a yearly edition of Mein Kampf for every Australian school child was a little bit of an overstepping. Well, it's a major undertaking. Mm. Um, you know, maybe he could write, he could send a, a letter to Infrastructure Australia or something suggesting that this be um, embarked upon. Um, but otherwise, his online postings are characterised by virulent anti Semitism. Um, Blair apparently believes that Jews rule the world, they rule governments, they rule media, they're engaged in a massive global conspiracy to destroy the white race. The white race needs to organise itself to oppose the Jewish control. Um, And also um, misogyny. Yeah, he wasn't Um, wild about chicks. No, he wasn't. Um, I think he expressed the opinion that they needed uh, to be uh, disciplined physically to keep them in line. They don't belong in leadership positions. They're essentially subordinate. So, I mean, this is um, probably not something that most people would agree with, I assume. Mm. Um, he, but his views are essentially uh, those of a classic fascist or Nazi. There's no real departure in terms of his ideology. Um, it's boilerplate fascism. Um, and I think that the, the one thing that people sometimes have difficulty getting their heads around is that this actually is a, a tradition. Um, they're in that tradition and it is um, nasty and misogynist and racist and potentially very violent. Mm. So he was going to leave the UPF and then more videos have been put up and then taken down. But what's the end result? Well, the end result is, I think... Um, Sherman is three and a half grand richer. Yep. And the UPF is once again a big happy family. It's a reunited Patriots family. Indeed. And I think the most amusing, well, one of the more amusing aspects was uh, the production of a video stressing the importance of uh, forgiveness. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> they, they think that they're entitled to be forgiven for their sins. Um, I'm not sure they extend the same kind of goodwill to the community at large, especially its Jewish and Muslim populations, but, you know. It was a very strange video stressing how um, dedicated the UPF were to forgiveness because it also stressed how undedicated the left were to forgiveness. Their enemies didn't believe in forgiveness. And it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. I think... um, I assume that on some level it's it's about trying to position the UPF as being less like violent loons and more like, you know, people capable of um, real human sentiment. Um, but I think the grim-faced nature of the announcement tended to undermine the message that was wanting to be communicated and, um, you know, uh, it's an interesting... I mean, the UPF is interesting in the sense that it has brought together... 
neo-Nazis, fascists and fundamentalist Christians. Mm. So until very recently, uh, Danny Nalia of the Rise Up Australia Party and Catch the Fire Ministries was included among the leadership of the UPF. Uh, Chris Shortis is a Melbourne-based Christian fundamentalist. Their opposition to Islam is deeply informed by their religious beliefs Mm. and slightly concerningly... Apocalyptic in nature, would you say? Yeah, I mean, Islam is understood as literally being the forces of Satan, as is the left. Mm. And for a person with deep religious convictions, um, what that gives licence to or permits is really a range of, or or, there's a spectrum of behaviour from relatively non-violent through until quite violent. And I think given the kind of, you know, uh, tone and nature of their beliefs, the way in which they're expressed, I mean, I actually think some of these characters are dangerous, Mm. uh, not only to themselves, but to others with whom they come into uh, contact and whom they oppose. And again, this was referring back to the, I guess, moving forward a little to Sunday night's program, it presented Reclaim and to a slightly lesser extent the UPF as being uh, just concerned mums and dads, um, which is a much more palatable, um, you know, presentation than a group of quite nasty and quite vile racists and fascists, which is what they are. Mm. So, and it, it, I mean, I guess we can talk about that show if if we've finished with the uh, antics that have gone on within the UPF. Well, if I could just briefly dwell on it for one more second. Sure. Uh, What has the reaction been from other players on the far right to all of this? I saw that... um, well, the Australia First Party f- firstly welcomed Sherman Burgess's uh, resignation yeah. uh, on the basis that they consider him to be a race traitor right. or a race mixer, at, okay. at least. And um, they welcomed the steady hand of Blair <laughs> Cottrell on the tiller. Yeah. Uh, but I think they were less impressed with the shenanigans that went on afterwards. Uh, so the thing is, the United Patriots Front sort of present themselves as being the Patriots group. Yes. Uh, but, in fact, they're only a Patriots group. That's right. Uh, what, what were the other group's reactions? Also, because uh, in one of Blair's uh, videos, he denounced uh, the ADL's leader, Ralph Sermonara, as a cancer on the movement. Yeah, a cancer, um, a pest, mm. a, a virus. Um, and I think that that was partly... And I guess we should add that Ralph has been a constant presence at UPF rallies. Um, and he's a very close to Sherman Burgess. Mm. Sherman and Ralph worked together in the ADL for a number of years. Um, I think at one point the ADL even nominated Sherman's band, Eureka Brigade, as being their band. Um, so there's a very close relationship there. But going back a little further, like a week or two, I think it was, prior to this point, Ralph had published on his page on Facebook, an Australian Defence League page, a call-out to his followers to launch lone wolf attacks upon mosques and upon imams. Um, His page was then taken down. I'm not aware of any other action that was taken by authorities or others with regards uh, Ralph's um, call-out. It's kind of extraordinary in the sense that if if a, let's say, someone, a a young Muslim uh, who fancied himself or herself as being a jihadist had made a similar appeal for attacks upon, uh, you know, Western institutions, 
I think they'd be in a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, so I think there's some sense in which Ralph is considered, as well as being a valor thief, that's the other thing that's um, uh, has been reported on recently with regards Ralph. Um, he, he lies about his criminal, uh, not criminal, military record. Mm. Um, I think he's viewed as being something of a loose cannon. Uh, comments that are so openly calling for violence against Muslims and Muslim institutions can be used to, if police don't act, which they haven't, can still be used to discredit the movement. Um, and they're very keen not to, you know, they want to eschew the extremist tag. They're just ordinary mums and dads, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. The failing of the Sunday report is there are many failings, just factual errors, misinterpretations and so on. But most importantly, there was no... Um, when when Sherman was asked, you know, some people accuse you of being a, an extremist, Sherman, how do you respond? He said, well, no, of course I'm not. I've never killed anyone. Um, and yet if you read what he has to write, if you listen to what he has to say, if you listen to the songs he's performed, they explicitly call for violence against Muslims and Muslim institutions. Uh, it's... And, and, and also towards this this um, incredible hostility being expressed towards asylum seekers, towards refugees. It's a deeply xenophobic um, tendency that's being expressed, which is completely unacknowledged. The other case with that, as I wrote about in, I think, The Guardian, um, was John Oliver. Mm. And although um, John presented himself as, a, you know, again, a concerned dad, he's associated with the Patriots Defence League of Australia, um, Earlier this year, he claimed to have established a fund to dox me, to obtain my details, and also made statements with regards what he thought was, uh, you know, a fitting fate for a treasonous element such as myself, mm. uh, which is essentially death. Um, so not, I think, a very pleasant man. Yeah, not and your not, biggest fan by any means. Not my biggest fan by any means, although there's, you know, he, there's, there's some competition there as far as, you know... Fandom is concerned, um, but it was somewhat disturbing to see someone like that on national television talking about his, you know, love of country and concern for his children's fate. When I know um, he's personally threatened myself with uh, tremendous violence. Yeah, and you're an Australian, and I am an Australian. So, in fam. a sense, it's a very un-Australian <laughs> thing to do. Exactly. So, the Sunday report was fairly abysmal. Actually, mm. um, failed to examine you know, in any real detail. On the other hand, it's it's also the case that the emergence of Reclaim Australia and UPF, and especially its um, more unsavoury associations with neo-Nazi and fascist politics, is beginning to be uh, explored, not just on my blog, but in the media. Mm. And I think that's probably a good thing. Well, I think it was very interesting to see just how much coverage Sherman's resignation got. Yeah. Like, it. I guess part of it was because it was funny. Yeah, um, I mean, it was it was ridiculous, really. Um, yeah, yeah. So, because essentially, the it it did get a, it got a lot of play across mainstream media, but yeah. I think that was it got its start sort of in your more Buzzfeedy, junkie, yeah. pedestriany yeah. sort of uh, media, which did take the the story took the narrative of here's a guy who has devoted a lot of time mm. to making other people feel bad. Yeah. Uh, and someone's had a fairly mild go at him and mm. he's cracked the sads. Yeah. And it, it's funny. It's funny. I also... Cyberbullying's not funny. No. But in this case, there was a hit, 
there was a bit of hypocrisy at play. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd say on that matter, I'm not sure that the reasons given were the reasons for his departure. Yeah. Um, he's he's done this before. He's announced, I think it was after the July 18 rally, he said unless there were, you know, 9,000 or whatever it was, that patriots taking to the streets, then he was going to hang up the gloves, I think he said. Mm. Um, it didn't uh, meet his uh, rather high expectations, but he remained on course. And I think... I think one of the problems for Sherman is that, um, if it is a problem, is that he's become deeply invested in this um, great Aussie patriot character. Um, he has a large number of followers, and the fact is that when he did announce his retirement, he received a fat check for doing so. Mm-hmm. So from his perspective, you know, if he wants to keep up repayments on his car and whatever else he's doing with his money, um, he has a flock that he can, um, you know... Uh, receive contributions from who are happy to give their money away to him. Um, yeah. And I guess it, there would be possibly some consideration that this is something that he could do on a semi-professional basis and just, you know, rely on crowdfunding in order to support his, his efforts. Well, one of the things that uh, I think it was Blair suggested was that uh, the crowdfunding had been pre-planned. Yeah. But whether the whole resignation thing was a farce to that end, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I mean, I think Blair claimed that um, Ralph had suggested, Ralph Seminara, that is, of the ADL, had suggested that a $20,000 fighting fund be established. Uh, Blair said he um, said no to that, so only three or four or five or whatever it was, thousand was raised. But there was some sense that, um, and especially in Blair's criticism, that, um, you know, this is a sign of weakness, that you need to be uh, uh, big, strong and tough like him to to endure. And the other thing is... uh, I'd say with regards to the reportage, yeah, there is a comical aspect to this and, and they are, as, as and the far right generally when um, often commented upon it is regarded as being somewhat farcical. I think that's true to some extent, but I think um, it would be wrong to simply look at the far right and its very shenanigans um, solely in those terms. I mean, these are actually, the kinds of ideas that are being expressed are abhorrent. Mm. Uh, they should be opposed, and they do have some appeal. So at the same time, while um, poking fun at these groups and these individuals is, is, you know, fine, um, I wouldn't want to allow that to um, obscure the fact that they're actually quite a dangerous current. And and it's also the case with Sherman. I mean, yeah, he's a bit of a buffoon, and he says, and you know, all sorts of stupid things. But it's also important to remember that even people who are ignorant and stupid can be really dangerous. Mm. I mean, it doesn't, you know, for these groups to be effective and to have an effect doesn't require them to be geniuses. It doesn't require them to be especially well organised. All they need to do is tap into a a kind of deep well within Australian politics that is racist and tends in a fascist, you know, in terms of politics, political expressions, tends towards fascism or some form of, uh, you know, ultranationalism, which is dangerous on, for, for, for particular groups, but for you know, the society as a whole. And to the extent that it, it presents itself and obtains the kind of support that was expressed in the Sunday program, um, is capable of mobilising more people. And often on a kind of, you know, to the extent that there is an understanding that these are concerned mums and dads and, and you, know, um, you know, there are problems with Muslim terrorists or whatever, um, that's just a hook. Really, mm. and what the task for the far right is, and what they're trying to do, is tap into this audience and steer it 
in a more straightforwardly radical right-wing direction. And we've seen evidence of that in, in terms of the development of the UPF and in terms of its rhetoric. It, it's kind of juggling, I think, to what extent it can openly espouse white nationalism, the extent to which it can openly espouse adopting an exterminationist mentality with regards Muslims. Um, and those are, you know, signs that others should, you know, and I'm not referring to the government or the state, I'm talking about the general public, should be looking at these things critically and asking themselves, you know, what can be done to combat these ideas and these movements? Because I think they should be. Mm. Perhaps moving on now. Yeah. Uh, this week also saw the establishment of a new political party. Indeed. The Australian Liberty Alliance. Yes. A uh, explicitly anti-Islam political party. Yep. Launched in Perth by Geert Wilders. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw... It was the, a rowdy launch, but yes. We saw the announcement of their uh, Senate candidates. Uh-huh. Uh, Debbie Robinson. In WA, yep. Bernard Gaynor in Queensland. Yes. And... Uh, Kiralee Smith, was it? Yeah. In New South the, Wales. The halal choices lady. Yes. Uh... What did you what did you make of this? Uh, well, it was announced some time ago. There was some discussion about whether or not he would be allowed into the country. I always expected he would be. He's a you know a sitting MP. Um, it, I mean, it can be understood as I think the ALA, the Australian Liberty Alliance, is essentially an offshoot of the Q Society, mm. and the Q Society is the most um, serious and less demented expression of Islamophobia in Australia. It organised, it's organised international conferences, it's had um, well-known speakers come to Australia to speak, um, and it's it's drawing upon a slightly different social base. Um, Debbie Robinson, the president, her partner is a, a surgeon in Perth. Uh, a lot of the people who are involved are drawn from uh, middle-class backgrounds, or they are middle-class, it's a professional kind of operation and they're they've been fairly keen to maintain some distance from the kind of crude racism that's been expressed by the UPF and Reclaim Australia and so on and what they're trying to do obviously is model themselves upon here in um, uh, the Netherlands and other groups in I think he referred to a range of different parties in Europe that have uh, successfully tapped into these concerns you know essentially a right-wing populism is how it's generally understood and described um it it's going to be interesting to see how much electoral support it receives um it, it its chances of obtaining some degree of success i think are um you know better than some other groups simply because it has the resources mm. um and is able to present itself in a semi respectable fashion so, and it doesn't, you know, in terms of Senate contests, it only needs a certain fraction of the vote to make it possible to actually be in the Senate. I mm. mean, we have Jackie Lambie in Tasmania, Ricky Muir, elsewhere. They were elected on a minuscule percentage of the vote. So there's some hope there, but also they've got to uh, compete against a range of other right-wing parties, microsex, and it's, a, it's an open question whether or not they're going to be able to to um, attract the support that's otherwise been expressed for, let's say, you know, Rise Up Australia or, or um, Family First or some of the other parties that are kind of loosely or cl- more closely associated with that kind of politics. Mm. I mean, the other thing to remember is that, you know, for that sort of uh, sort of softer anti-Islam 
feeling. Although it's not especially soft, but for you know what I mean. For that, you can go to the Liberal Party. The right wing of the Liberal Party yeah. will, will sort you out in that regard. Yeah, it, it will. I mean, it, it could. I mean, there has been some ructions within the Liberal Party in terms of you know Turnbull being understood as a small L liberal and the the reactionaries within the party, the Tories, not being happy with that. I don't think the party will split on that basis. But it does pose a, a, a question to those elements within the Liberal Party. How are they going to ring... And it was the same challenge posed by Hanson as well, is how are they going to be able to reincorporate into their own political structures uh, this kind of sentiment? And it was done in the case of Pauline by launching a campaign against her, but also adopting her policies. Mm. And the other thing that should be said about the ALA is, yes, Islam is a concern, but there's also expressed a concern over the future of European civilization, which is apparently threatened by uh, migration from what they term, you know, and is popularly termed the third world. So it's a question of, um, I guess, on some level, what they express is the ideology that informs the construction of Fortress Europe. And currently, and one of the reasons for the success of these parties is this, you know, a crisis of management occurring in Europe with regards to the transit of uh, migrants over borders. And one of the reactions has been, um, you know, this ultra-nationalist political movement that's spread across Europe. And, of course, it's, it's the other thing that should be kept in mind in that context is that the reaction has hardly been uniform and there have been very strong left uh, responses to these kinds of issues as well. So... I mean, and the other thing, you know, one of the reasons that Australia um, has the importance that, that it does within uh, far-right discourse and white nationalist discourse is that Australia is looked to as being a very successful example of um, constructing, you know, a fortress. Um, those who are attempting to enter Australia by boat, seeking asylum, seeking refugee status, uh, incarcerated on islands off the coast. Mm. Um, many within Europe, and I think it was a few weeks ago there was a report, I'm not sure if it was in The Guardian or elsewhere, by an Australian journalist who attended a a demonstration in Dresden, I think it was, and whereas the reaction on the part of the crowd to most other journalists was quite hostile, he was welcomed purely on the basis that he was Australian and therefore understood as being a racist, and he was welcome. Um, So it is the case, and it it enters into their rhetoric and, and for serious political consideration... Australia is looked at as an exemplar of um, this kind of politics. The mm. kinds of po- and and in Australia, it enjoys bipartisan support. Labor is completely uh, behind uh, the Tories on these on these matters, and has been for decades. We might look at one more issue before we go. Okay, which is an upcoming uh, thing in Cronulla. Yeah, the Party for Freedom. I think a few months ago announced that they were going to have a uh, happy birthday. Cronulla rights. Ten years on since the Cronulla rights. Yeah, and apparently they may have applied for and ex- uh, received permission from local authorities to hold this event. And recently, Sherman Burgess has um, given it the big tick. And so there's going to be a, a lot of um, propaganda encouraging people to attend, uh, you know, the um, what could possibly be a reenactment of the Cronulla riots or could simply be a small picnic. It's, it's uncertain how many people are actually thrilled to be celebrating the 10th anniversary in this fashion. But um, 
you know, uh, and, that, and I guess I've certainly seen coverage along the lines that the uh, mayor of Cronulla is not impressed. No, I imagine that the, the, the local, you know, there are many locals who aren't impressed. Um, but it's also important to understand that this is pretty much where these guys are coming from. Um, Sherman Burgess wrote a song in which he sang that um, Cronulla was a great thing because it was Muslims. Uh, Australia, uh, Cronulla was Australia's Muslim Holocaust. Mm. Um, Which might be overstating things a little bit. It's overstating things, but I think it it's, uh, should be read as a clear expression of his intent. Yeah. You know. Um, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's what's going on. Yeah. Uh, if people want to find out more, there are a number of places they can look online. I would recommend slackbastard.anarchobase.com. Thanks, Cam. Uh, Twitter.com slash slackbastard. <laughs> and Facebook.com slash slackbastard, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but yeah, your, yeah. Blo- your blog and Facebook are a valuable resource. Yes. And, uh, of course, Melbourne Anti-Fascist Info, as um, Blake referred to yeah. earlier, is an- another great source of info. And also the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism yes. page. Yes, yep. All right, that's all we've got time for. Folks, a quick plug before we go. Coming up at uh, on the 22nd to the 25th, mm-hmm. which is including this right weekend. now, this yep. weekend, the Mess the West Melbourne DIY Fest, which is on Melbourne's west side. Where can people go for that? Um, I don't know if the exact location has been disclosed, but if you go to Facebook or the uh, blog for that event, you'll be able to find out. Yeah, there's going to Footscray, be... Footscray, I assume. Yeah, there's going to be bands, there's going to be flea markets and zine fairs, there's going to be workshops tomorrow on Saturday uh, that you can check out. Yep, there's going to be all kinds of stuff going on. So look up Mess the West. The Mafalda program is up next. This has been The Sewer Show, and we'll see you again next month. See you later, guys. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.